Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. My name is John, and I am joined by my very good friend, JP. Hey guys, so today we're gonna be going through chapter three of Pragmatic Programmer. The chapter is called The Basic Tools. So we're gonna be talking about the basic tools that a pragmatic programmer will be using. I like this stuff a lot. It was really basic, but it's really good like to remind yourself you know, there's that old quote that's, I think it's by like George Washington. And it's, if I have a day to chop down a tree, I will spend six hours sharpening my ax and the last two chopping it down. Right. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. It's about like refining your tool set and getting better at it. And I have admitted on this podcast in the past that I, I kind of hate tooling and I hate like messing with my text editor and all these things, but it's always a good practice to review your tools and know your tools well. So I like this quote that you've got here at the beginning that kind of introduces the chapter and then I'll list off the tips and then we'll start tearing through them. How does that sound? Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, do it. So this quote that it kind of starts off with is, quote, every craftsman starts his or her journey with a basic set of good quality tools. Um, so the tips are, as we go through them, keep knowledge in plain text, use the power of command shells, Use a single editor well. Always use source control. Fix the problem, not the blame. And don't panic when debugging. So that's our set of tips that we're about to jump into. And so that's the main thing here. What are our tools? And we're going to start talking through these tools here. Cool. Actually, do you want to start our discussion? Just a quick, brief little talk about what our tools are. I, th I think it'd be pretty cool just to talk about some of the things that we use daily. And I think it's like cool insight, especially because I'll see people on Twitter like Wes Boss and he'll post like a screenshot of something. And then sure enough, you'll look at like the comments, what text editor is that? What font is that? What theme is that? <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. I, even though some like, even though sometimes tooling can be a major distraction, I think it's kind of fun to see what other people use. And I, I know I'm guilty of myself of coming off as a snob when I ask people what text editor they use. But yeah, I just sort of wanted to like, you know, talk about our tools for a second. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds great. So I'm on a MacBook Pro, the newest one without the finicky, stupid touch bar. I feel like that's like the basic thing. It's like, what computer am I using? You know, I'm not mm -hmm. a Linux guy. I've done it in the past, but I haven't really settled into that. I like Sketch. So I stay on Mac mainly for that. My editor is Adam. I switched to it actually pretty recently in the last three months or so. Mainly because I was impressed by this demo that they did with this teletype pair programming tool, but I don't even use it. That's what like got my attention. I was like, oh shit, I should install that. That seems cool. But since I have come to love just the absolute like, and I Sublime Text had this too, but like the huge community of linting and just everything's really polished in Atom and it's a little slow here and there, but it works pretty well. So that's my main two tools. I use GitHub incessantly and then like soft tools. I use Asana for kind of task management and coordination. Those are like my main tools. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, so I, I, had the, I think I have the same MacBook as you do. I like the 13 inch fully specced out. Size doesn't really matter. You know, I don't really need screen real estate. And when I do, I, have, I plug in a second monitor. For text editor, I, I actually use Mac Vim. I used to use like Vim straight from the terminal, but it just became really slow. And in fact, I just use, I used to use iTerm and then I switched to terminal and then I switched back to iTerm just because Vim in terminal is very slow. Anyways, that we'll get to editors later. Um, what else do I use for my tooling? I have a mechanical keyboard and a nice Logitech mouse. I feel like it's it feels really cool to be coding or like hacking away on something when you have all these tools at your disposal. Just it just feels cool for some reason. I don't know what it is and it has no indication of how good of a programmer you are. In fact, you don't even have to be a programmer to use some of these tools, but like 
I wish the the amount of coolness that you felt was directly related to how good you are at programming. It's one of those things like I remember like way back in high school or whatever, I used to be in a band and like you'd have the the guy show up with a three thousand dollar guitar and the you know, seven hundred dollar guitar amp and like he wasn't good. But it's like <laughs> he was so into the tools that he had to play guitar and like so into the gear and the equipment. And I think it's important to value your tools, take care of your tools and know them really well. Like I feel like that's the most important part here is that whatever tools you use, you use it to its fullest extent. And you make sure you understand why you chose the tool you did. Because it's also like not good to just use it because you always have. Mm -hmm. Like it's good to reassess. And sometimes there is better options out there. But there's like this constant struggle between getting too caught up into like what key switches do I get? Do I get the brown? Do I get the other ones? <laughs> I just suffer through the MacBook keyboard. It's awful. But I suffer through it. And I've been like more and more tempted by mechanical keyboard. I just I code a lot on the go and I try to keep my setup like super minimal because I like to be able to just grab it and go and wherever I am, whether it's up in the mountains or whatever, and, and just try to write code wherever I can. So I even, I use second monitors from time to time, but I, I try to make myself even force myself to use a single monitor oftentimes just because I try to keep it super simple and kind of open the box and go. Um, but do you use any like shells? Like you said, you mentioned you used iTerm for a while, but I use this thing ZSH instead of like Bash. Do you use like a custom shell at all at all? Have you played with ZSH? No, in fact, I do use ZSH too. And I use, I think it's Oh My ZSH, but I feel like That's it's what probably- That's what I use, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's Oh My Zosh. I feel like it's it's like a pun, a play on oh, words on Oh My Gosh. Zosh, yeah, Oh My oh my Zosh. That's totally what it is. It has right. to be, right? I don't know. I've yeah, never I, confirmed, confirmed that with anybody, but in my head, that's just what I say. Um, I was using ZSH or Z shell. I think it's short for Z shell at the Ruby meetup. Yeah. And one of my friends there, Eric, I think you met him. He was like, oh, you should try fish. It's like way better than ZSH. And I was like, man, to be honest with you, I don't even know the first thing about bash scripting to know the, like what like the pitfalls of Z, Z shell are. And that's like one of those things where like it's on my long list of things I need to get better at, like my tooling, like part of my tool belt. I don't know anything about like bash scripting. My regex knowledge is absolutely terrible. But those are uh, those are like on my laundry list of things. It's on the back burner of things I want to get better at. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, so to begin this chapter, I want to sort of end this discussion on a nice little quote about tools. And it's this. It's tools become conduits from the craftsperson's brain to the finished product. They have become extensions of his or her hands. And I just, I don't know, I thought that was like a really cool quote about how your tools are literally extensions of your hands. And, you know, sort of like your, the ha your hands are extensions of your brain. And so like in a way, it's all intertwined. I thought that was pretty cool. It's so true. And it's so cool. I think especially in programming, because all we do in our job is organize knowledge. Like that's really all we do. Like we don't even like shape a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. We only organize our thoughts and others thoughts like into a system. And so like more than anyone else, I feel like our tools are really extensions of our own brains. But there's actually this demo, a Microsoft demo. And if you search on YouTube, I think it's um, uh, how I program blind. And it's a demo at a Microsoft build conference. Mm -hmm. And it's super cool because it's this blind guy showing how he writes code like C code. And it's incredible to see how much and how productive he's able to be just listening back to the screen reader and then typing. But like, he's so fast and the thing's like, blah, 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 blah. and like, it's this <laughs> robotic voice that reads it all back. But it was really like that illustration to me 
really showed how much we are just organizing thought as a job. And it's such an interesting thing we do. So I just love that thought that our tools are extensions of our brain. Totally. Yeah, we are more than anything writers. But anyways, before we digress too much, let's discuss the first tip, which is tip number 20, because we're, you know, continuing from the last episode. Tip number 20 is keep knowledge in plain text. And so if anything, I feel like this might be one of those tips that feels a bit antiquated because it feels like I there's there's never been an instance where I wasn't doing this because plain text doesn't become obsolete. And so this is opposed to keeping things in binary, you know, <laughs> or I don't know, maybe yeah. you might have more insight into this, but I feel like keeping things in plain text is mostly about readability and being able to read your text. But yeah, did you have any other insightful things about this? Well, I feel like tip 20 was really targeted at people who are keeping things in like specific formats like binary or something different than that. And I'm just thinking to myself, I would never do that. <laughs> but what it, what it did make me think of is how many developers I've seen who will keep things like to-dos in another system like Trello or mm, okay. in other places. And like, that's not easily exportable. And like, I even lean on Asana here and there, but like mainly just for the main organization of things, like follow-ups on sales and things like that. All of my actual like code to-dos, I keep in the system alongside my code. So I keep it all in GitHub issues. And it's not plain text, but I think what it is, is like an extensible and reusable and easily accessible format and easily shareable and reusable. So if you're out there and I want to like extend tip 20 into like really think carefully about what systems you invest too deeply in for like your documentation and tasks, like if you're throwing a lot into Evernote and you're not exporting or backing up, you might want to rethink that system and use something a little bit more portable. Maybe it's time you just open up a folder on your computer and just start committing to Git all in plain text, those kind of thoughts or to-dos or follow-ups and just make it something that's a little bit more portable and that can you know, be more reliable in the future. So I think that kind of extends tip 20 in a way. And that was kind of where my brain went when I read that. Cool. Yeah. I think that actually adds a little bit more discussion than I had originally planned, but I, it, just seems, <laughs> yeah, like, it just seems so obvious. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Like what other format are you going to store it in? Like what, a bunch of JPEG images? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next tip was to use the power of command shells and Totally another one that seemed a little bit obvious to me, but it's like if you're dragging things around the graphic interface and dragging and dropping things like, come on, like learn some of the main things, really know how to navigate your command shell well. And, you know, I'm actually every once in a while can be uh, susceptible to this just because I've come from design and like sometimes I will just open up Finder when I know how to do it in mm -hmm. the command shell and probably could do it in half the time. Yeah, this one, uh, this one is a little interesting because I feel like I'm using it. I'm using the, the command shell decently, but there are definitely ways that you can be a lot more productive. And I think one of the examples was like this crazy example of like advanced grepping and finding and searching and then, you know, chain like, you know, finding and replacing. Uh, now that gets crazy. And that's definitely one of those things that I think if you invest a couple, couple hours every day, you'll eventually get really good at it. But yeah, so I think I, I think one example of, of of using the command shell well, just so that we can, you know, discuss it in a little bit more detail for our listeners is, for example, let's say you want to create a new file. If you do that using the GUI, let's say you, you want this to be in a certain folder, you'd have to open up your finder if you're in a Mac, um, you know, right click or find the little button that says, you know, that has the little drop down and then click, you know, uh, new file. 
and then you would type in the file name and then type in the extension and then and then you'd have a new file whereas if you were to do this on your command shell all you have to do is change it to that new directory um if that directory doesn't is it doesn't exist then you could just make the new directory and then touch that file and boom now you have a file and then without having to navigate anywhere you're all literally just in the command line which is kind of cool and i could see where things like the command shell is really powerful especially for things like invisible or invisible files like dot files for example like things that you can't see and all of a sudden then you're googling like how do i view a, an invisible file from my finder on your mac and then it's like you don't really need to have to do those things if you're really good at your shell yeah i will say some of these things though in modern editors have moved into the editor like mm -hmm. easily making a new file in a directory easily find search and replacing like i don't use grep anymore because i have like command shift f like mm -hmm. in adam or what, most of my editors i've used and i use it really really well and i would think just as fast to be able to do that without ever touching my mouse and i think some of that stuff has bled over into the editor which kind of leads into the next tip yeah sure this is a really nice segue our next tip is use a single editor well and I mean, I think that one speaks for itself. I'm all I'm such a huge Vim evangelist and I have no autocomplete on my on my thing. So like I literally type every single like variable name, even if a var variable name exists in a file, I retype it and I have linting. So I know that if I misspell it, it will like shout at me, for example. Um, but what I thought was really cool is I was pairing with uh, some of my friends at the coding dojo and they're like really new to react and so they were like oh can you hit can can you demo some react stuff and so i was like okay yeah sure so like i you know made a new react app and i was typing literally everything and these guys use vs code so they're like i don't know if you've ever watched a screencast with vs code or just a youtube tutorial with vs code Yeah, and i've played with it too yeah but people are insane with the autocomplete on that shit okay and i think vs code is so freaking distracting for a tutorial because you watch it and literally you type in a single letter and there's like all these square windows <laughs> popping up everywhere to like do you want to autocomplete for this and it's like oh my god i i, I don't i can't even tell what's under your cursor and what you're typing because of all these things that are popping up on the screen and I don't know if that actually helps when you're like coding to like be able to see all these windows and like pick and choose from them. But I just think that's like such a huge distraction. Not only that, but I think it's a crutch um, and I'm getting a little off topic here. But I think that like, let's say you do end up having to do like an interview or something like that. And whatever setup they provide to you because you can't use your own computer for whatever reason doesn't have like the same auto completion as you're used to. All of a sudden you're like trying to type you know, some function name that's built into whatever library it is you're using and you don't know what that function name is. It's like, what are you going to say? Like, oh, you know, what? I'm just so used to my editor auto-completing this for me. And so I've gotten, I've made it a point to not use auto-completions just so that like I know exactly what I'm typing and I'm being very deliberate. And I think it's actually helped me as a programmer too, because, you know, it's like really embarrassing if you're, if you have to like write a new, for example, an active record model and you don't know what what that class should inherit from and it's like uh you know i don't i don't i have like my angle brackets but i don't is it application record is it active record like what am i what am i inheriting from here and so i think a lot of the times editors can be a crutch in that sense when uh, i mean that's going into the topic of generators too but but yeah okay so i've rambled enough about that yeah well i would be a little bit on the other side because i'm not a vim proponent i totally respect and appreciate people who do use it and do go all the way and damn like i feel like with no autocomplete i feel like that's good and i understand why you're doing it for sure and i think you had a lot of good reasons to do it but i also think like there is a time and a place for sensible autocomplete you mm -hmm. know i've got it set up i think on adam so it's like 
four characters in. And then if there's like a 12 letter variable name or model name, like it'll autocomplete. Like it's pretty turned down because I do hate it when I'm typing like one thing uh-huh. and it just like goes crazy and like autocompletes all this stuff. I really hate the ones that like, that like expand out what you're typing. If yeah. I didn't like implicitly set up that expansion, it really bothers me. But I do have a couple expansions set up for things that I just write all the time, like an image tag expansion I have and a couple other ones just to save time, just because it is less keystrokes. And I do think there is some benefit in some of that. Just to like balance. Your <laughs> I'm a little intense about it. Well, I, I really respect it, but it's just like a little bit more minimal and hardcore than I do. And I, I want to get there, but for some reason, the key bindings, like I can't get over that hump of the Vim key bindings. Like I love the stripped down approach of everything, but like I can't get over the key bindings. And I know that like I just need to stick to it for a week or two. I just have never had the week where I can have the productivity hip to do it. Yeah, I will say it did take a while because I was a Sublime user and the, tradi- and the transition from Sublime to Atom, and I still use Atom on occasion. Um, the tr- transition from Sublime to Atom is like very seamless. It's like almost nothing at all. Yeah. Um, but to actually feel productive in Vim did take a little bit of time, although I do think I am now faster, if not as efficient. I will say, though, that auto completions for CSS in particular, because mainly because I'm so weak at CSS, I like need this. And it just points out how much of a crutch it is for me. Mm. <laughs> but I there's no way I would ever do CSS in Vim. Like that's like my worst nightmare if I had to code CSS without autocomplete. <laughs> That's funny though, but in a way it's kind of a, a code smell of your skills. Like yeah. If you're leaning on, you know, think about things that if you really can't write without your autocomplete, maybe turn it off for a couple of weeks and see how you do and try to build that muscle of those few things. That's cool. All right. The next one is always use source code control. But to me, this one is like such a no brainer, but I, you know, I live in that world of doing more full stack stuff, but I remember back in the days years ago just doing kind of WordPress work and more front end work and even stuff like Squarespace, like before source control. Oh my God, how painful changes and revision history and keeping this all in check. I, so like, I so appreciate it now. And even for like static files or marketing copy, like everything I do is in source control. If not in Git, which most everything is in Git, then at least like Google Docs that has really good version control and merge history and things like that if I'm working with someone who's non-technical. But yeah, always use source control. If you are flying without source control, I I can't fathom why you're doing that and you need to stop. It's not that hard and you need to get your head around it and get going. Totally. And I think one of the big barriers for this is how confusing Git can be. And it's it's interesting to me because I was I was I've only been in this software development community when Git has existed. So like I never had to deal with like S SVN uh, version control, whatever the hell that is. Um, so I know that, but people sp- speak very poorly of it. But Git itself can be very confusing for people that don't really know what they're doing because it's it's like this weird magic thing that you type in your command line. And if you're like maybe a front end developer who doesn't really work with a command line that much, it could be like this weird, very scary, intimidating thing. Although I will say once you learn it, it's such an invaluable tool. Like you absolutely need to be checking things into source control. Regularly. Regularly. Commit early and commit often. (laughs) Um, I have two, two, two little stories about source control that I think are really interesting. The job that I currently actually am, am leaving in two weeks at the time of this recording, the front end devs there just like don't use source control, but like, I don't know, it's just mind boggling to me because there was this recent like 
power outage in like the rows of computers that they were on because of they were like plugging way too many of their iMacs into like the same power strip. And I was like, dude, what if like the code you were working on just like for some reason didn't save into your PHP storm or whatever? It's like, dude, you'd be totally screwed. Like if you if you didn't have that somewhere on like Git and not only Git, but like GitHub. Uh, but hey, I mean, they've been flying without it for years now and nothing's happened. Fingers crossed. But I don't know that that just like is like a, that worries me. I also like it too. Just like one quick thing, it's like when you use Git well, you're so free to re-edit and throw uh-huh. things out, like just delete models and rewrite them because you know it's always there. Yeah, and it's a good way to like. And if you want to experiment, then you can have like your own branch, like a, a new branch. That yeah, doesn't just have to like literally just check out a branch that's like testing shit and just test the shit. <laughs> it's that easy. It's amazing. Yeah, but I guess it's easy to say that because we have a pretty solid grasp of Git. But I was working again with these a couple of my friends from the coding dojo and they were working on this app and it's just three of them. And but they were working on a full stack application. And, you know, when you're hacking away on things, it's easy to work like step on each other's toes. And so they were experiencing like a lot of merge conflicts Mm. and they didn't know how to like resolve these merge conflicts or they didn't have like any sense of like, oh, I should have my own branch. I shouldn't, we shouldn't all be working on master and then pushing to master. And it got, it got so confusing to the point that what they were doing was they were airdropping entire folders to each other (laughs) instead of like checking into Git, going to Git, uh, making their own branches, like doing things like, you know, like the right way, quote unquote, the right way. But instead they were, it's like the equivalent of being like, here's my flash drive Here's a flash drive that has my code on it. When you're done editing this code, save it back to the flash drive and give me that flash drive back. It's just so unnecessary. But I could see like for a more junior dev, like just wanting to like not screw it up. Like it's yeah. working. I'll just send you that folder. So I could totally understand that desire. But yeah, it's funny because I feel like I used Git, but didn't really understand it until I actually used, this is years ago though, The and I don't even know if they still have this, but there was a GitHub app for Mac OS, I think they still have it, that has like graphical representations of what's going on. Like it shows the branch you're on and your branch, this is the one you have checked out, and then you commit it back and like it shows those merges back and forth. And if you like are having trouble getting your head around Git, just download that app, honestly, or if you're a front end guy like wanting to tow in, at least you can still use source control and version control even though it's a GUI, but it might be that learning tool to start learning how and get your head around it. Like if you feel like you're out there using Git, you don't really understand what's going on. It's a really good app and it gives you that visual tool of what's going on and a click and drop interface to like, like, okay, what are the commands that I can use? But what's cool about it too, is it uses all the same language that are in actual Git commands. So you're literally just building, I'm sure that you're just building those actual uh, command shell, you know, commands for the GUI, but in a good way, and I think in a really good way for someone who's novice, it's a good way to start using version control or get your head around it if you don't really understand what's going on. Yeah, totally. And this was going to be my one of my picks, but um, there's a site called frontendmasters.com and it's mainly for like frontend devs. A lot of JavaScript, a lot of like CSS, really advanced topics. Um, but there's also a course on there that they offer called, I think it's like Git in Depth. And it really is... Um, helpful to understand how things are working under the hood because like all git is at the end of the day is like a tree structure of whatever files you have checked into git it's pretty interesting i would highly recommend it for those who like kind of have an understanding of git like you know you get add you get commit you get pull you 
you know, you're able to do these things and have like a nice workflow. But if you're like looking to like up your game a little bit, um, I've gone through a couple of the the first couple of first couple of sections and it's already given me like a little bit of clarity of kind of what's going on under the hood. And I eventually need to finish that course and understand what the hell rebasing does. What the fuck is a rebase? Anyways, that's for I don't another know. time. I just do it when I don't know what's going on <laughs> and then it works. <laughs> um, but I will actually one quick PSA on source control is if you have like a full computer backup, like carbon or time machine or Dropbox that's backing up your folder that holds your Git repository, do not do that because it can easily create really, really strange merge conflicts. Um, if, because like Dropbox, Dropbox and Google drive specifically, if you like point a Git folder to those, they do the, these weird partial files that end up actually really screwing up your Git repository. And it can be really hard to recover. I accidentally had pointed a Google drive back up to one and it was like really hard to recover. So that's just like a quick PSA there. It's, um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I come from a world of like graphic design. And so I used to have the need for like external hard drives and things like that. I would always be so used to putting all of my Photoshop documents and Illustrator files onto an external hard drive. And now as a developer, as like a software developer, I don't really have much of a need for an external hard drive. Like I don't really have files. I mean, maybe it's like backup images from my phone, like photographs from my phone. But I remember when I was making really that first transition from like graphic designer to software developer, I would put like my code on my hard drives, like even if it was mm. checked into Git or not. And then like at one point I had this epiphany, like, why am I doing that? Like this is on GitHub. If I need like the most recent version, I'll just get it from GitHub. Like, I don't know why I'm saving my code on my hard drives. Anyways, <laughs> a little fun fact about myself. That is funny, but I, it's funny that I do this and I'm, I'm like thinking about it now, but about once a month, I plug in an external hard drive and I just drag everything over to it. Just because like I have a lot of code with a lot of value and it's like I want it in three places. I want it like at least a monthly backup that's like somewhere that's not my laptop. It's on my laptop and then it's also on GitHub. But like, I don't know if the world blew up and my laptop, you know, I don't know. It's but yeah, yeah I, you're probably right. If it's on your main machine here and it's up in Git, you're probably fine. And you have good security practices on both of those and you're probably just fine. Yeah, I can see where the redundancy is probably, you know, helps you sleep at night, but <laughs> it's yeah. probably totally unnecessary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Well, anyways, um, our next tip before we digress too much is tip number 24, fix the problem, not the blame. And this has nothing to do with like get blame. So here's a little, here's a nice little quote. It doesn't really matter whether the bug is your fault or someone else's. It's still your problem. <laughs> so, so basically suck it up. So like, when you come across a bug on a code base that you perhaps inherited or you're the new developer on, I guess it's easy to be like, who, like who wrote this code? Like, wh why is there this bug? Like, how come there's no test coverage for this? Like, you know, the developer who wrote this is stupid, but then like, you don't know what was going on at the time. You know, maybe you don't know this, the circumstances in which that code is written. And regardless of all of that, I mean, that doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, you still have to be the one that solves it. And so fix the problem, not the blame, I think is supposed to be a, a way of thinking where you are not so quick to judge and to think of it and to, to maybe just approach the problem as, it, as like, oh, this is just a problem. I'm going to find a solution and not 
you know, be angry or, you know, blame someone for it. I struggled with this for a long time, especially being like frustrated at what I would call user error. It's like, oh my God, how could you make a error so stupid? Like this isn't a software bug. There's no bug here. It's not my problem. Uh It's not my fault. And I would kind of get defensive because like I wasn't very confident in my skills as a developer. And so when people would threaten that and say that there's a bug going on, I would get really defensive and be like, oh no, this isn't, it's not a software problem. It's a user problem. I read this book that's not code related. It's about design. It's called The Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman. And it completely changed my perspective on this whole fix the problem, not the blame. And there's a whole section in this book where it's literally like three chapters of the book that it just talks about how there is no user error. There's only design error. And if someone can make the error or is making the error, error with the product that you designed, then it's your problem and you need to own that from a design perspective. And he talked about industrial deaths and how there's these hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide, you know, every once in these periods. I don't think it's hundreds of thousands a year, but it's thousands a year of people who die from things like forklifts or cranes or um, tractors. And they always call that like user error and Mm -hmm. user industrial error. And he is like, it's about time that the designers of this equipment step up and own their responsibility in this. Like they shouldn't make it possible to cut your arm off on this product or make it much more explicit so that it's a lot harder to cut your arm off with this product. Um, and, you know, he uses a ton of great examples about this, but more and more, every time I get that email or that text message or whatever that is from my end clients about a bug or a problem in the system, I'm very, very careful to never assume user error and always go into it with the intention of this is my problem to fix. No matter how stupid I feel like the user is being, my system is erring. It needs to serve the user regardless of what they do to my system. There's there's lines on this. Okay? <laughs> Some people try to break your system and throw everything at it or trying to hack your system. Those are different things. But I think you know, 99% of the time when we want to push back as a developer and want to be like, no, it's user error. It's like, well... There's probably some design error or validation that's missing, or you're not cleaning the input way, but it's like, oh, they had a leading space on their email, <laughs> so that's why it broke. Why, why did they do that? And it's like, well, why aren't you handling that? Um, so it's those kind of things. And I think it's really important to you know fix the problem, not the blame. That's the tip, so back to that. This next one is super related, it's tangential, and it's don't panic when debugging. This is such a good tip, especially for a newer developer. Um, For me, for a long time, it's like I felt like it had to be fixed. It had to be fixed now. Software is not something that you can force. You can't force your brain to realize the solution. Like You can't force your brain to realize what's going on. You have to give it time and you have to think and you have to start from the bottom up. You have to go through the entire thing. And one of the things that he talked about in the book is like, make sure that you are because there's a lot that was talking about about replicating the problem and trying to reproduce it and so many times we're not given all of the information it's like oh this screen isn't working but isn't working means a lot of things to a lot of people <laughs> it's like what is isn't working mean like is the page not loading are you getting a 500 error what does that look like so like first like collect all the information you can And then second, when you're repeating it, make sure that you're using all the same inputs again. And he talked about this a little bit and it seems obvious, but it's easy to forget. And the one thing that I do is I I use pretty often the Pomodoro technique, which is like these 20 minute or 30 minute timers to get work done. But I especially do it when debugging because it's important to like lift your head up every once in a while 
and like give yourself some breathing space and like switch to something else, read something else, go on a walk and get away from it. Because most times like taking a shower or sleeping on it is what actually fixes it and helps you realize where the error is like so many times. And I also loved this quote that he had is just like, and I do this all the time, which is like, this isn't possible. How is this possible? And I think I'm stealing your quote here that you had here, JP. But like so many times, like you're looking at this, it's like, it's not possible. It's like, it's going on. So clearly it's possible. Like he, I think he, what he said is like, don't use a single brain cycle on thinking this isn't possible, which is like such a good piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I think early in my like career, my software development career, whenever someone came to me with a bug, it would like, it would fluster me and I'd be like, <gasps> like, that's not like, yeah. Like what, what are you talking about? I, I met, I covered all of my edge cases. Um, but I recently tweeted something. I think DHH retweeted. No, I don't know. I don't know who tweeted it, but, um, I, I tweeted this tip and it's some guy. Oh, it's a guy named Chris Fritz. He says, Tip, I've avoided thousands of bugs with this crazy coding trick that seems to work in every language. And then it's this, go to bed, you're tired. No, shut up, just sleep. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, that, that one hits that one hits home. That one hits, that cuts me deep. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've stayed up to like 2 a.m. fixing a bug. I couldn't get it fixed. Finally frustrated, went to bed. Like the second I wake up, like there it is. It's so obvious in front of me. Yeah, I remember early on in the WizTutor days when um, I couldn't get the JavaScript to compile and it was because I had like a trailing comma somewhere. So like it would compile on on local, but for like for some reason it would compile locally, but on prod it wouldn't and all the like JavaScript and CSS would be jacked up. And it was all because actually, of one stupid comma. <laughs> Heroku is like really strict about CSS errors. Well, like if you are missing a comma here and there in your CSS locally, or even like in a deploy in a lot of places, it'll it'll compile just fine, it'll run just fine, like the browser will figure it out here and there on CSS if you don't close something properly. But Heroku is like super strict about it. And it's funny that it won't break on your system. I think there's a config somewhere to like make your local system like force that, but Heroku is like super strict about it. But yeah, it's like one of those things, it's like that comma, it's like we should not spend <laughs> that time doing that but and also that just that, that idea of just not panicking slowing down knowing that whatever is happening it's obviously possible because it's happening <laughs> yeah. don't waste your brain space like thinking it's not possible start solving the problem so those are our tips for today to re kind of power through them again it's keep knowledge in plain text use the power of command cells use a single editor well always use source code control fix the problem not the blame and don't panic when debugging Do you have any picks for this week jp Oh, I got two and they're amazing. Uh, I'm ready. The first, the first pick is actually from our other book club, um, Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I've only gotten through the first couple of chapters, but it really speaks to me. A lot of it, a lot of what she's saying resonates and um, a TLDR of it would be basically hard work and your persistence and your willingness to basically keep on trucking will get you really far. So you don't necessarily need to have innate talent, although innate talent does usually um lead to things like lead to lead to having grit um, because you're so passionate about things that you will you will have that grit but that's not to say that if you're not already innately talented at something like coding or music or sports you can still get there without being natural born with that talent um so yeah, yeah it's that's a great my book pick. yeah um my second pick is a rails a rails conf talk or a ruby conf talk and it's by a guy named adam cuppy and um, Jake from the from our Ruby in Hollywood actually um, yeah, yeah. told me about this guy. And he has this really, really cool talk. 
probably one of the best talks I've heard, I've heard on the internet called, I think it's, what if Shakespeare w wrote Ruby? And he has a background in like acting. And so he has this really, really cool talk about what if Shakespeare wrote Ruby? And the whole, I, the whole premise of it, um, not to like give anything away is basically like Shakespeare came up with 1700 new words that he just like made oh. up. And so he sort of relates this idea of being expressive with your words and he relates it to Shakespeare. I don't want to like misspeak, but yeah, it's, that sounds super it's really cool. I'll definitely really check cool. that out. Awesome. And we'll link all this stuff, of course, like we always do in the show notes. My pick for today is like super straightforward. It's kind of tech related. It's a website called Swappa. Oh, I've heard of um, this. I've used it so many times to like buy gear, like, cause oftentimes like I just like need to buy an Android phone for this project and like, I'm going to get rid of it. Or if I test something on this kind of like, it's a buy and sales for technology products. So they have laptops, smartphones, iPhones, tablets, like that kind of stuff. But like I need to get an Android phone. I don't currently have one. I used to have a Nexus 5X for testing and stuff. But it's like I was looking for, you know, Google Pixel cheap used. Like I don't care if it's like a little scratched up. Like this is the best place for recycled uh, gear like that. Like or selling your old gear. It's really good as well. It's better than eBay. There's a lot less junk. And they do things like the IMEI confirmation. So you know it's not stolen. It's not blacklisted. So they do like some of that stuff that's really, really cool. And it's really easy to use. And it's all PayPal payments. So if you've used eBay in the past and it was like kind of shitty, this is like a next level up that's specifically for only these few products. And it works really, really well. So I've had really good experiences on there. I've never bought laptops, but I've bought and sold probably like four or five phones over the past two years. And just a strong recommendation for me because I was looking on there today. I was like, oh, I should mention this on the podcast because it's really a good platform. Yeah, cool. It's always it's always um, hard to know where to get like used phones for cheap, especially for like testing. Like if you just want a cheap Android device to test your app on for whatever reason, sometimes going through Craigslist is like kind of a hassle because yeah, because it's Craigslist. It's <laughs> nice to just be able to enter your credit card and have it show up at the door and know it's not going to be stolen. And that's what swap is good uh -huh. for. The other quick mention I'll put out there is refurb.me for refurbished Mac gear. And it's really, really awesome. It's like, it's like a little tracker for refurbished Macs from the Apple store and other places. And it's a really good way to get like three or 400 bucks off a Mac. Anyway, those are my two tips. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We will see you guys next week. If you would be so inclined, we'd love it if you could drop us a review on whatever you're listening to, whether that be you know the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or over on Spotify or wherever you're listening. That'd be awesome if you could drop a review. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find our website, it's iterationpodcast.com. And if you scroll to the bottom there, you will see me and JP's Twitter. So you can reach out to us. Thanks so much for listening, guys. All right. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you guys next time.